turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, and in the New Testament, to the book of James, chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bible, you'll see on the back of your sermon outline are our texts for today, and you might want to have those available if you're uh, following along with me. Because we've been studying together the life of Abraham, and last week we looked at the most significant episode in his life, didn't we? The sacrifice of Isaac. And what did we see? We saw a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the Lord's provision of a ram, a substitute Savior and sin-bearer. And we continue in that story this week because at the very end, God speaks to Abraham, and I didn't get a chance to talk about that last week in verses uh, 15 through 18, and how the Lord praised Abraham. And so we read, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And the book of James has such an important interpretation of this event that today I'm going to do something a little different, and we want to take a New Testament lens that, the, that God's Word actually gives us on the passage that we've studied these past two weeks. And we want to see how it applies to us. And uh, so, I want to tell you a story that some of the men in the men's group will remember for a few years uh, a few years ago, there was a gentleman who came to the men's group who was trying to decide what church he wanted to be a part of. And as uh, we talked back and forth, we got to that most important question, how is a man right with God? How are you right with God? And his answer was, I've been studying a little bit, he said, it's through faith in Christ and the merits of my obedience. That's what he said. Through faith in Christ and the merits of my obedience. And I said, what do you think I said? I said, no. We are right with God through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. That every one of us is tempted to add at least one brick to the house of our salvation. But the Bible says salvation is of the Lord over and over again. And our obedience in terms of making us right with God, our obedience counts for nothing as we read through. Uh, and, and there were several passages that came to mind in Romans 3. For we believe that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. And he said, well, you Protestants, you, you know your Bible, that's good. But what if he had said, yeah, okay, preacher, but what about the book of James chapter 2? He said, I have my own text of Scripture. 
And you read from Romans 4, which says Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness. What does the Scripture say? Uh, Abraham was, just, was not justified by works. He had nothing to boast about. But God justifies the ungodly. But I read from the book of James chapter 2. And we read that already. But look on, follow with me in the back of your bulletin sermon outline. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then down in in verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that, without, that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Ha! My friend might have said. James says Abraham was justified by his works. Paul says Abraham was not justified by his works, but just by faith. Who's right? Does the Bible contradict itself? What do you think? And the answer is no, the Bible does not contradict itself. And we know historically that these two men were in agreement on this doctrine. Acts chapter 15, they went to the first general assembly of the church, and there they sorted out this issue, and they were clear on that it is by the merits of Christ that people are saved. What's going on here is that these two men are using the word justified in two different ways to make two different points. This is really important as they both point back to Abraham to make their point. The word justify can mean to make right. For example, if you paid off a debt, you owed somebody some money, and you took out your checkbook, and you had cash in the bank, and you wrote out the check, and you paid the debt, you would be made right with that person. You could say you were justified before that person. The debt was paid. The problem was solved. You were justified by that. But justify can also mean to prove right. If somebody said to you, I want you to justify that statement, what do they mean when they say that? They say, we want you to prove that that statement is right. So justify can mean to make right, or it can mean to prove right. You don't make it true, you're just proving that it's true. So Paul is saying you can't be made right with God. You can't be justified except through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. It's apart from the works of the law. And yet James is making a different point from Paul. He's not talking about how you get saved. 
He's talking about how you know you are saved. What does true saving faith look like? Or James, as he calls it, the opposite of dead faith, living faith. What does living faith look like? Well, the answer is, it looks like Abraham, who we've been studying. And it's living faith that brings God's encouragement and, and, uh, and He commends Abraham. And the more personal question is, how do you know if you have saving faith? That's really the important question for you and for me today. How do you know if you have a living faith or not? So we're going to look at this, and I've been studying commentaries on the book of James, Dan Doriani's, men named Andrew Siegenthaler, and it just good commentaries on this. And they take us back through this text carefully, and they talk about insufficient signs of faith and sufficient signs of faith as you and I look at ourselves today and explore our own uh, lives. James, they say, starts by looking in a direction that surprises us. <laughs> Where does he tell us to look? He says, look at demons. Isn't that startling? Did you catch that in the text? He starts by looking at the faith of demons. And um, we don't know a whole lot about the angelic world. We know that before the creation of this world, God created a spiritual world of angels. Angels means messenger or sent ones. These are spiritual beings sent by God to, to fulfill His purposes. And at some point, there was a fall. There was a rebellion in the angelic world led by Satan, and these angels are now demons, called uh, demons or evil spirits, and they are thinking, emotional, personal, spiritual beings, which are committed to evil and incite rebellion against God as they are in rebellion against God, okay? James says, you want to learn about faith? Okay, let's first look at demons. And there's two things about the faith of demons, he says, that are, are really quite fine in and of themselves. But if you have them, you can still be a demon. What are they? Well, the first thing, he says, is sound doctrine. Isn't this interesting? He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. You see, they have the facts right. You believe that God is one, you do well. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, James says. The demons are right about that fact. You do well that God is one. And we said in the Apostles' Creed, you see, we believe in God. And he's not just saying the demons believe in the existence of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 was the Shema that every little Jewish boy learned the first words out of his mouth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The creator-creature distinction. There is one God. He is the living and true God. He is distinct from all He has made and rules over all things. That is the Lord our God, and He is not many. He's not many little idols. The Lord is one. Do you have that right? You've got to have that right. But the demons have that right also. Hey, 
you know we take sound theology very importantly in this church. We lay up God's Word in our heart. It's so important to us. But Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on this very verse, and it was the title. I love the title of this sermon. It's called, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. Here's the way he put it when he preached to his church. He said, the devils have all been to the greatest divinity school in the universe, the heaven of heavens. The devils have been to seminary. Your pastors have been to seminary. Good for us. But guess what? The demons have been to a better seminary. And the demons understand true theology more than the greatest saint who ever lived, the greatest preacher who ever spoke. Now, there's nothing wrong with good theology. In fact, without sound doctrine, we are going to fall into so many pits of mud and brambles and snares along the way. But you can have sound doctrine and still not have saving faith, according to James. I have a friend, Dan Doriani, who wrote this commentary on the book of James, and and he, he tells how he was hitchhiking uh, home from college in Pittsburgh, and he was hitchhiking home from college, and a truck driver picked him up, and Dan started witnessing to the truck driver, and the guy stopped him, and the guy said, oh, I believe in God, and there is only one God, and I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and on the third day, he was quoting from what? The Apostles' Creed. He had right doctrine. But as he was driving along, he said, but here's the thing. He said, he said, I love the ladies, and I've got a lady in every town, and I've got to have my fun. And Dan Doriani says, can such a faith save him? It's startling, you see. You can have the right doctrine, but your life shows that you don't believe that right doctrine. And then James adds something that's really sobering. Secondly, he says, not only do they have sound doctrine, but he says the demons believe and what? shudder. They don't just know it. They know it so strongly that they shudder. And the second point there is that an emotional response is not enough. And I want that to sink in for a moment. You can have such a strong belief in the power of God and such a strong belief in the, in the greatness and the wisdom of God and that he, what He will do on the judgment day that it It makes you shudder that you're afraid of Him, afraid of His judgment, afraid of hell. You respect God. You know that God sees everything that you do. He's he's not ignorant. And you might not be like that truck driver. You might be very moral. Why? Because you shudder at the thought of the judgment of God. You know that God is holy. And it causes you to shudder. You have an an emotional, visceral reaction to that reality about God. And so you try and be a nice person. Why? In order to hedge your bets 
that on the judgment day, maybe God grades on a curve and you have about a C+. But James's point is that even an emotional response to God is not enough to save you. Even if you have great feelings and you shout in the service or you weep in the service and you raise your hands in the service and, and you experience ecstasy inside. Well, you know what? Malcolm X, when he was converted to Islam, had tears and, and, and joy and relief and he was changed. And, but it was just an emotional response. Hindus have emotional responses. Buddhists have emotional responses. Atheists when they, something becomes clear to them, they get a real charge out of their atheism. You know, an emotional response is no guarantee of saving faith. So listen to what James is saying. There's nothing wrong with having sound doctrine. You have to know who God is. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to understand sin and the cross and salvation. And there's nothing wrong with having a vivid sense of who God is and His power and His holy hatred of sin and having a sensitized conscience that makes you tremble at His judgments. And certainly there is nothing wrong with having a profound emotional response where you are deeply touched and you remember those days when God just, His Spirit put His finger on you and it, and it caused you uh, to tremble. And we love conversion stories in this church. You know, we bring people up and they tell of sometimes of remarkable conversion stories. And, and we, they weep and we weep with them, tears of joy. And that's a good thing. But right doctrine and an emotional response is still insufficient for saving faith. So the question that hits you right between the eyes today, according to James, is this. Is my faith more than that? Is it more than doctrinal beliefs and emotions? And if it is more than that, then what is it? What are the sufficient signs of saving faith? And James tells us, and Paul tells us, look at Abraham. Saving faith rests in Christ and is alive toward other people. Saving faith rests in Christ and is alive toward God. James calls it the opposite of dead faith, a living faith. You see, for, for a human being to be alive, you don't just take a leg and an eyeball and, a, and, a, and an ankle and some hair and put them in a box and shake them up. It's still not alive until there is the vitality, until there is life. There has to be the new life, this mysterious life force. And it's the same with saving faith. It's alive toward other people, and it's alive toward God. James starts by pointing us toward other people, and he starts with a negative example. Did you hear it? He says, if a brother or sister... Um, is without clothes or without food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
So what James is teaching us is that if you have true faith, it's actually going to be alive toward other people. People in the body of Christ, in this church, are you alive toward other people? It says in the Bible that Christians, when they get together and one weeps, the others weep with them. It says in the body of Christ, when one rejoices, what do the others do? They rejoice with them. We're alive toward other people. You are not a rock. You are not an island. On the north shore of Long Island, why do people love to live like they do? They can go in, they press the garage door opener, they wave without looking at their neighbor, and they go into their garage door, and they close the garage door behind them, and then they are an island. They are a rock. They are unto themselves, in front of their television sets, on their screen, under the illusion that having friends on Facebook somehow makes them connected to human life. No. If you're a Christian, you actually have a heart that is alive toward other people. And in particular, James says, to their needs, to their suffering, to their hurting. Over 40 times, Jesus looks and it says, and He saw and He was moved to compassion. I don't know if it's over 40. I think it's dozens of times. Like the widow of Nain, do you remember her? There's this big crowd of people in a funeral procession and He sees her. Her husband is dead. Now her son is dead. And Jesus looks at her with such compassion. And then He moves toward her. He speaks to her. And He serves her in a way that only Jesus could. He raises her son from the dead. And everybody cheers and everybody's excited, but Jesus doesn't stop. He stays right with the woman. Forget all the hooray, hurrah. And He gives her, her son back to her. He cares for her. And if you're in union with Jesus Christ, that same life is in you. A vitality that makes you alive toward other people. Kids, in school, there is somebody in your class and people pick on them. I hope it's not you. They pick on him. They pick on her. And that person goes home, and when they're in their bedroom, they cry because of the emotional pain they go through. What the Bible says, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian child, if you're a Christian teenager, what does your heart do? Your heart cares about that person. And you're willing to stand against the trend and the tide and put yourself even between those who attack. And you befriend that one. And you say, cut it out. He's all right. Why do you do that? Because you're alive toward other people. And you don't leave them alone. And the love of Jesus touches them through you. And the world sees it. And you share, you see people, you know, there are not that many people without clothes, but there are people with financial needs. So every second Sunday of the month, we pass the offering plate two times, right? The first time is to cover our ministry uh, vision. What's the second offering plate for? Do you remember? It's for the benevolent fund. 
And I wish, and I probably should read to you the letters I receive from people who are blessed by the gifts from the Benevolent Fund that we send to them at a particular unique points of struggle in their life. And they write back and they say, oh, thank you. Thank you for your help. You're sacrificing. You know, you could do something else with that hundred dollars. But you give it because you're alive toward the needs of other people. Saving faith is alive towards other people. And, and he actually talks about Rahab. And what's his point with Rahab the prostitute? You know what she was? She was a woman of courage. You see, that example I told about the teenagers in school who stand up and help somebody else out, you know, that's like Rahab who was full of courage, willing to take risks. Rahab took risks. And her faith was proven true. You see, what risk do you need? If, you're, if you would say, I just can't do that stuff, I'm too selfish, then you, you go back to God and you pray, Lord, how is your vitality, your life supposed to make me alive toward other people, to bless them? Okay? And then secondly, James says, true faith, living faith, the faith that proves you are justified, that faith is alive toward God. And we get back to Abraham. Let me read you again what James says. Was not our father Abraham justified um, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? His faith was alive along with his works and was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then this phrase, what does it say? And Abraham was called a, you got this? A friend of God. And that's really the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. Yes, you can see the power of God and the justice of God, even something of the kindness of God. But there is something that dead faith cannot see. Jonathan Edwards writes about this in his treatise on religious affections. He says, you know what a dead faith cannot see? A dead faith cannot see the loveliness of God and His Son. It cannot see the beauty of the Savior. That's why we sing that song, Beautiful Savior, Wonderful Counselor. Abraham was a friend of God. Now, if you have teenagers, and I had teenagers, teenagers get their driver's license, and you know what they say? They say, can I have the keys to the car, please? Where are you going? I'm going to be with my friends. How long will you be gone? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. What's the agenda for your meeting? I don't know. Why do you want to go? And then is the beautiful answer. It's a beautiful answer. We're just going to hang out. Why? Because we like being together, Dad. It's not to win their approval. It's not to get something from them. It's not to, so that maybe they could get blessing back. They just are friends, and they enjoy 
each other's company. There's something beautiful in, the, in their buddy that they really enjoy. And Abraham had it right with God. Abraham was the friend of God. Abraham hung out with God. That's how he knew it was God's voice, even when God spoke to him those difficult words that we studied last week. And you have this sequence where Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about, justification by faith alone. Even before he offered up Isaac, he was justified by faith. Okay? Reformed theology is true. You have no merit of your own to contribute to your salvation. But once you have been saved, and the beauty of the gospel of grace touches your life, you're alive toward others. And you're alive toward God. And He is your friend, and you obey Him. Before Martin Luther was converted, you may know the story. He was tormented in his soul. How can I be right with God? And his friend Staupitz came to him and just said, Martin, you're going off the deep end. You're so anxious and always worried about judgment. And, and Martin, just love God. And do you remember what Luther said? He said, love God. I hate God. I cannot stand under the pressure of His holiness. I will not be able to stand on the day of judgment. How can I love God? And then he came to Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. And Luther was alive. And the sweetness and the beauty of salvation by grace washed his anxious soul. And he was at rest before God, and he began to love God, and Luther, of all people, became alive toward people and alive toward God. Is that your experience? I pray that it is, you see, my friends, because faith without works is dead. If somebody says, how do you know you're a Christian, and your answer is, ten years ago at this church service, I raised my hand when the preacher said every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's your answer, that's not an answer. How do you know you're a Christian? You believe, yes. You have emotional appreciation of Him, yes. But you bear fruit in your life for Him. Now you know, as Abraham did, and as all our fathers in the faith did, and mothers in the faith did. So can you sing with us now? I want to love you, Lord. I want to love you with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. Why? Because you are beautiful. Because you saved me. Because when, when Abraham was, said to, was told to stop, he stopped. But God did not stop. The Father did not stop. But he gave up his son, his only son, whom he loved for you and since He gave Him up for you, your sins are forgiven. You're made right with Him. You are justified by grace through faith. And now, and now you love Him. Let's pray. We thank You for our brother, the Apostle Paul. We thank You for our brother, the Apostle James. 
And we thank you that they both looked to our father Abraham, who was justified by faith. He believed in you. It was credited to him as righteousness. And that is our experience. We are saved by faith. Faith alone. But, oh, our Father, we thank you that Abraham's faith was made complete, that it was perfected, that it was proving itself as he obeyed your voice. And we ask now, Lord, that you would send us out of this place alive toward people and alive toward you, and we will love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.